On this episode of Popscast, a celebration of the unsung hero of the orchestra, the viola. Also a chat with C4A co-founder and Urbana Pops Orchestra principal violist Robin Kirton, who will be giving a free recital on April 9th, and today will be giving me a viola lesson. Popscast is made possible by the Urbana Pops Orchestra and the Community Center for the Arts in Urbana, Illinois. Engaging in community arts discussions and issues in Illinois and around the world, this is Popscast. Hello, I'm Daniel Sutherland, Principal Conductor of the Urbana Pops Orchestra, and welcome to another episode of Popscast. Today we're talking to Robin Kirton, the co-founder of the Community Center for the Arts here in Urbana, Illinois, who will be giving her free viola recital at the Urbana Free Library on April 9th at 2 p.m. She'll be joined by accompanists Matthew Gladden, Tom Foe, and students from the Community Center for the Arts. Robin, you're an incredibly distinguished member of the musical community, and C4A also supports that community in so many ways. Thank you so much for being here. It's absolutely my pleasure, Daniel. Thanks. It's mine too. And I want to know, when did your musical story start? Oh, well, I think that I was in the fifth grade, so I was about 11 or 12. and um, So like everybody else? Like everyone else, mm-hmm. yeah. I didn't come from one of those musical prodigy families or anything like that. No, nobody else except one of my cousins plays <laughs> music. Um, I think that my parents are both uh, truly music appreciators in their various in their own individual ways um, but they had a string quartet do a concert in our school one day mm-hmm. and I was in it enraptured mm-hmm. and I went home and told my mother that I wanted to play the violin and she took my temperature and <laughs> it was like um, no but they my parents you know they let me try it mm-hmm. and um, I liked it, but I didn't really understand what it was to be a musician. It was just kind of this cool way to go, and mm-hmm. it was sort of fun to make these sounds. And I didn't feel any affinity for it other than, well, this is kind of fun, until I got to middle school. And that was the first time that I beheld the viola. Mm-hmm. So and you started as a violin player. I started player. as, yeah. everybody started as a violin sure. player. And um, actually, the guy who taught our class, it was the very, very beginning of uh strings in the public schools in Lakeland, Florida, where I grew up. And they still have a thriving program, I'm happy to announce. So the the guy who uh, started this program was this kind of old cool bass player, which I didn't realize he was cool until years later when I was looking back at him. Mm-hmm. But he was this jazzer guy who played. And to me, he was just like this kind of old guy who taught the bass, you know, but I was fond of him anyway. And, um, and jazz isn't really a, a violin kind of thing. No, and he didn't even play violin, mm-hmm. you know, but but it was, he just wanted to do it. He wanted kids to play and he, he went and did it. And uh, I'm grateful to him. When I got to middle school, I heard the viola and I just instantly wanted to switch. Mm-hmm. And I had to lobby hard to do it, amazingly. because Re- Really? Yeah. <laughs> so your teacher didn't say you're going to make more money as a violist if you're good than you will as a... Or, no. Or you'll get, you'll get better gigs or more gigs? No, I think he saw that I was getting more and more interested in it. Mm-hmm. And I think he was looking down the road and I was going to be a violin section leader. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I really want to do the viola. Uh-huh. And everybody tried to talk me out of it, but which, of course, made me more obstinate sure. that I needed to do that anyway that was that was it once I picked the viola there was no looking back until you know, I went to Florida State where I did most of my viola performance degree then I moved to South Florida and I was a freelancer and 
they had like 20 little orchestras down there that everybody played in. Sure. And, um, just like here in just, Illinois. Yeah. Um, when I moved here to uh, Champaign-Urbana in 1992, I had already been playing with the Illinois Symphony for a number of years because I lived in Indiana and I just commuted like everyone mm. else does. Sure, yeah. And I thought, well, I'll just, you know, play in the CU Symphony. I know they need some string players. And, mm. I, and I looked and their viola section was full. I know you're making that face. Like, yeah, like that's like I'm I'm telling you a story. Yeah, I struggle to find. True. I mean, you I mean, you know, you play in the viola yeah. section anyway, and we. I mean, we. I'm, I'm always stressed out about yeah. getting viola players. Yeah. So, um, but I really wanted the gig. Mm-hmm. So I just, um, you know, I'd been teaching violin for years, and I just said, well, can I just sit in the back of the seconds? Don't make me play too high. You know? <laughs> and so I did that for a number of years, and eventually got to be much more comfortable as a violinist Mm. as well which was good expanded my horizons and um, for those of you out there who think that playing viola is bad for your violin chops or vice versa you're you're not right Mm. I think it's everything that you play feeds the other things that you play and I've heard that yeah I've heard that before too probably both ways yeah it really does because when I first started playing the violin it was such a little toy that I took that ease into the viola. and um, But the thing about the viola, I love the violin, by the way. Sure. But the thing about the viola is the tone. Sure. Is that what is that what made you want to switch back in your early days? That and the girl who played viola was really cool. Oh. So it was a social thing. It was a social I thing. Gotcha. Music's always a social yeah. thing. Oh, no, that's, yeah. that's true. She was so cool. Um, I was never that cool, but but it got me playing viola. <laughs> I'm sure you were you were cool, <laughs> and maybe in my own nerdy little way. Mm. But um, the thing about the viola, though, and what I stress when people want to study viola with me is the tone. Mm-hmm. And otherwise, it's a hard instrument to play. It's big, it's cumbersome, the parts aren't always gratifying. Mm-hmm. And mostly w- never gratifying. Yeah, why would you want to do it? Well, because it sounds really great. And um, I have um, my sort of tone meter that I teach to my students mm-hmm. is chocolate. It's like you could play with a Nestle's Crunch kind of tone, or you could dig in and really listen and find the, what the viola can do and play with a really fine dark chocolate tone. That, uh, first of all, is a great depiction of that, but also makes me very, very hungry for chocolate. Yeah, well... <laughs> That's a great way to describe the um, the the sound of the viola, the viola as well, because it's not. I mean, it's not a. Um, I suppose as an obtrusive sound, or as a. Uh, I'm trying not to be insulting as, as an attention-seeking sound, uh, <laughs> as the violin. You know, it's not. It's not as high, and it. The the parts are never as. Uh, I suppose as. as um, They're always as buried in the texture. Yeah, right, but you, I mean, it's a sound that that is required, though. It is because without it, it you know, it's. It, it's actually, a, you know, the viola is kind of this perfect, at least to me, I, I could be totally wrong. You, you would know, too. Um, it's a, it's kind of a perfect balancing voice uh, between a very bright, high-pitched sound and, and, a, and a lower, you know, kind of, I guess, scratchy sound. Yeah. I think what's what's interesting about violas and, and its tonal, one of the tonal aspects about violas is uh, I was, I read once that the violin is acoustically perfect, and oh. the viola most certainly is not. Um, every viola I've ever played is has a very different personality, and you try hard to find one or to tweak yours so that it sounds even. Mm-hmm. 
but you have to really, really try hard to find out how to play each individual viola. And a violin turn. Well, they are too, but I think it's just less so. Yeah. They're just more um, even-tempered. Anyway, that. But I, as as far as that sonic texture, yeah, I think the the viola sound is is generally suited to mm-hmm. its function, which is probably why it gets put there in the in the sure. texture. Sure. Um, so, who are you listening to um, that guided your your sound? Who did you listen to that you really wanted to sound like? As a violist. Sure. Or as a violinist. I suppose that my my teacher in college was the first one that I really wanted to sound like, mm-hmm. um, and his name is Daryl Barnes, and he he is this uh, really sweet guy. He studied with the great pedagogue Ivan Galamian, mm-hmm. and um, I was really impressed that he played in the Philadelphia Orchestra under Ormandy, mm-hmm. and, and he was just, well, he probably is. I haven't seen him for a number of years, but he was a pretty cool guy, and he when he played the viola, it just sounded wonderful. Sure. Um, you know, I actually went to, I had a, a friend in high school who was a year ahead of me who went to Florida State. He was a violinist, and he was actually, he was the driving force behind me becoming interested mm-hmm. in the violin. Um, he was kind of my best friend all the way through high school, and when he went to Florida State and met this viola teacher who was new there, he said, oh, by the way, you're coming up in October because he's giving a recital. Yeah. And uh, oh, sure, I'll do that, you know. And I went to hear it, and I just, I was instantly enamored of that sound. And because up until that point, I was pretty much deciding, I was looking around for which school I wanted to go to be a biology major. Oh, no kidding. And uh, when I went to hear that, I was like, no, yeah. <laughs> I, I need to play the viola. Yeah. Now, you're not just um, you're not just a classical player. I know uh, a few weeks ago we did an, epi- an episode together um, with your husband, uh, Tom Foe, about the Clifftop mm-hmm. um, Festival and about um, a, a completely different style of playing from classical playing. Uh-huh. Um, and we talked a little bit about how you discovered that. So, and I, I assume that you, you started off as a classically trained string player. Yes. And then discovered more Appalachian uh, Yeah. Th- you know, tell us, tell me a little bit about that. Well, when I was an undergrad in college, there, you know, you hang out on the practice room floor, and there's all sorts of unsavory characters mm-hmm. up there, and including jazz players. Oh, sure, saxophone players. Yeah, and some of them were saxophone players. Yeah, and bass players. <laughs> and there was this one guy, and when I was somebody who wasn't completely turned off to the idea, he glommed onto the idea that I needed to learn to be a jazz or a gypsy jazz player. Mm-hmm. And I thought that sounded pretty intriguing, but I was awful at it. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't know that, but that's when I discovered about Stefan Grappelli. But it was an insurmountable obstacle for mm-hmm. me at that point, and I just kind of let it go. But when I lived in South Florida, I played, I was fortunate to get into the circuit that got to play lots of different shows. Mm-hmm. I played with a number of really. Like, the, like theater? Um, um, no, like. Um, like what they have at the assembly hall. Like I've, I got to play backup orchestras with. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so sure. I got to play with really amazing people like George Benson mm-hmm. and Tony Bennett, and uh, my favorite all-time one was playing with Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. And here, just seeing the passion and and having to play, still written out music, but in a different style, in a different sure. way. Yeah, yeah. So is that kind of? Did you have a strong? interest in improvisation 
uh, at that point, or uh, did it kind of evolve into something where you became a little bit more interested in improvising? Well, I thought it would be really cool to be able to do it, but I didn't put in any work on it at all, and so I wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I put that away for a number of years. Well, that's a that's a nerve-wracking thing to to do, and, yeah. and and I mean, even as a saxophone player, I'm not. I I enjoy playing classical saxophone, but improvisation is mm-hmm. even still today is hard for me, and it, it always makes me feel kind of like I'm not doing it Intimidated. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I totally understand. I got I got into improvising from an unlikely place actually. Oh. Um, when I first moved to town here, I fell in with Barbara Headland and Dorothy mm-hmm. Martirano had a booking agency, and um, they would hire me frequently to sure. play gigs with them. And Dorothy's notorious for just flying off the page. Mm-hmm. And she inspired me, and, and we got to a point where we would sort of egg each other on to sure. add ornaments in this Mozart trio that we'd played five million times. And <laughs> um, so we, you know, and once I, once I did a little learning and found out that this is legitimate, we can mm-hmm. do this, um, because they kind of expected it at the time, then uh, we would just get doing it more and more. Some pieces lend themselves to it quite readily. Sure. Um, and also Dorothy did a lot of the arrangements, mm-hmm. which she would just kind of sketch out and mm-hmm. expect to be filled in. And that was kind of how I got started improvising. It wasn't like studying bebop theory or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's not even uh, it's not even completely out of the um, you know out of the realm of possibilities in classical music for improvisation and yeah. you know, Baroque players improvise all the time. And yeah, you're supposed to. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, that's actually, um, that's, a, that's a neat parallel between the, the, the improvisational chops that you would expect to have to improvise compared to exactly what you just said about like learning like bebop theory or yeah. you know, the thing that, you know, like modern jazz. Yeah, my next step there was playing in a tango band called the uh, Gorilla Parlor Ensemble. Mm-hmm. And um, the leader of that band was uh, the Bendonione player. Um, that was a really fun band, and that was my first band, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, um, he would kind of write out charts and was kind enough to put the, the chord structure in mm-hmm. on a lot of them. And that got to me to thinking and more along the lines of voice leading and what notes could I put in here. And mm-hmm. so I started thinking more harmonically that way. Sure. But I started out with any kind of improvisation thinking um, linearly mm-hmm. instead of vertically. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And I think that's what most people think when you have to improvise. It's like you have to know all the chords. Sure, and you have yeah. To, oh, that's how know. I was taught in improvisation. Yeah. Um, but I... I like to think of it as listening, listening, and then finding what fits my fingers and what mm-hmm. sounds good on the instrument, and and uh, hoping that it sounds right. Sure. <laughs> you know, and so that's you know that's one approach mm-hmm. to it. Now, uh, being a working musician and even a teacher is is one thing, but being an arts administrator is something completely different, um, which is a, a role that you you came into uh, in two thousand six mm-hmm. with the Community Center for the Arts. What what made you want to form an, a nonprofit? Insanity. <laughs> um. People ask me about the Urbana Pops, <laughs> and I say the same thing. And someone's asked people have asked me if if I could go back and do something uh, differently. I I would I jokingly say that I I wouldn't do it mm-hmm. because it, it's it's very stressful and it's you know 
but probably that's the reason not I'm, true, is yeah. it? Well, it's, I mean, I, not at all. I mean, not wanting to do it, not mm-hmm. at all. I mean, I, I, I think that despite how many gray hairs it's, it's given me, I think um, I've, I've loved every second of it. And I, I wouldn't believe you if you told me you didn't love every second of it either. Yeah, there were seconds where I grouse. Mm-hmm. But in 2003, I, uh, I had about 50 violin students in my home studio. Mm-hmm. And, well, no, that was before I went to grad school. I was, I was finishing up my, I didn't realize that I was finishing up my graduate program, mm-hmm. which didn't actually ever finish. Mm-hmm. But I was coming to the close of my graduate school <laughs> program. And um, when I went back to grad school, it was to study Baroque performance practice, which mm-hmm. is, guess what? Lots of improvising. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, but I was lucky enough to wind up being a teaching assistant in the World Music Survey a lot of times. And it was great for me because I had always been interested in different music styles. And this was, so it was a, it was a fun class for me to just have to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I, I liked was uh, I started to think that, well, everywhere that the violin went, people embraced it and incorporated it into their own music. Mm -hmm. And that sort of made me fall in love with the violin again. Mm -hmm. And I was also sort of starting the old time fiddling stuff. And that's when I got this idea to do a summer program for my students. Mm -hmm. And that's how the Bodacious String Band was born. And it was just this one week thing. I don't, I don't, I don't remember if I told you this part of the story or not, but I'm happy to hear it again. Yeah. The, um, the, the kids in the, in the camp, just, they liked it and they insisted that we keep going Mm -hmm. and it, it developed, and that's that's really how the school was born. Because every time we would play out anywhere, people would call me asking for teachers. And mm-hmm. um, as it turned out, the <clears throat> just a whole series of events coalesced into well, it's time to start the school. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just went for it. Was there any one particular driving force that that made you decide ultimately yes or no? Was there anyone there maybe at your shoulder? Saying like you you need you need to do this you finally need to do this. Well, I had all these um, conditions that I had set. Well, I can't do it unless this or this mm-hmm. or this or this. And the last condition was, um, well, if I'm going to start a school, I have to have other teachers, mm-hmm. and I don't have any other teachers. Oh well, I can't sure. do it. Um, and then, sort of out of the blue, a former student called me up and said, "Well, I'm you know I'm finished with my degree and I'm back in town. I think I'd like to start teaching violin. Can you help me get started?" Mm-hmm. I was like. <laughs> but that wasn't enough. Then I was uh, I was talking. Someone called that a sign, perhaps. Well, the the next sign was that I was talking to, who is currently my husband Tom, who was at that point um, a bandmate with whom I was becoming friends. Sure. And um, that's romantic. Yeah, we weren't even romantic yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I was telling him about this idea. I was like. Oh, it'd be, you know, I'm kind of thinking about this. And, and without missing a beat, he said, well, if you do that, you know, you're going to get tied up with administration and this and this and this. And I, I just said, how do you, how is it possible that you just know all this stuff off the top of your head? He said, oh, well, I worked with the, you know, community music school in Portland, Maine for years. Mm-hmm. And, and he goes, but I'll help you if you want. Well, I, I, that's, <laughs> as a second sign, I, I suppose you probably ran out of reasons not to do it that was if you have a good support and you have that was the last straw sure yeah (laughs) um and you um i was reading a little bit um about the c4a and how really how amazing it is and how you um you started off with a small number of teachers Mm -hmm. um were they all violin teachers or well the first the first crew was the two of us Mm -hmm. uh myself and my former student kelly mcqueen Mm -hmm. and tom oh i got you so they were the they were the ones three sure okay yeah and then Uh, kelly went 
you know, her doing her own thing after a while. But every, there were more signs. Like every time we needed somebody, they would just appear. Mm -hmm. Um, Rob Crumb came up on the horizon pretty early. Um, Actually, there was, there was another pretty funny sign where this, um, I don't think I'll name him because I think he wants to be anonymous, but Mm -hmm. it's a guy who goes to all kinds of music things. And, um, I didn't really know him very well at the time. And he just, you know, I saw him, he said, what's new? I said, well, I'm thinking about doing the school, but I, I don't know why I was telling him this. And I saw him a few days later and he handed me a business card and said, here, I've, um, given this lawyer a retainer to give you a consultation about what you should do about incorporating. No kidding. And I, <laughs> it's like, that was another sign. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah. And that, I'm sure that, um, that made it quite easy. Yeah. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and he's still an avid supporter of our school. Mm-hmm. Did, um, did you, did you attract teachers quickly or was it just the three of you for a while? And... It was the three of us for a little while. And then, like I said, Rob Crumb came on to teach guitar and bass and mm-hmm. he's, He's sort of a more gregarious fellow than I tend to be. Okay. And so he was a really good spokesperson. Um, and then we got to be sort of full. And, you know, I, I'm very comfortable teaching violin up to a degree. Mm-hmm. But then we started to get some students who I felt, you know, I could teach them, but it would be better if there was a real violin teacher. Mm-hmm. And then um, this really fabulous player named Dion Matthews came back to town and just called me and said, Oh, I'm back in town. Do you have any students? And it's like, actually we do. (laughs) And every time, you know, we were thinking, well, Hmm, should we start a piano program? And then somehow, uh, Chris Raymond, the piano jazz pianist came came into our, yeah, he coached a, he, he coached a jazz ensemble. I was uh, in Millican, Uh, a teacher went on, on hiatus for a while and, that's yeah. he's he's a really neat guy too. Oh, he's fabulous, yeah. yeah. And every time it was sort of like, hmm, should we add this? That person would show up. And yeah, it, it was really great. <laughs> that sounds a, a bit divine. Yeah, <laughs> in, it was. In some ways. It's, it sounds like it, it was a pretty informal addition every time yeah. too. A lot of synchronicity was. In, I think mm-hmm. that kind of thing is, you know, we just happened to be paying attention and saw there's this person. Sure. They can come in, and and they saw that we were doing something cool and wanted to join. And sure. Um, it, it couldn't have been all fun, though, especially at the beginning, I bet. And there, there had to have been things that, that made it very hard for you to do it. Well, not being trained in business was one. Uh-huh. I mean, I was, in a way, um, we started in 2006 and we incorporated early in 2007. Mm-hmm. And then we thought, well, yeah, we're going to become a nonprofit so we can apply for all these grants, right? So we did that, and it took us until 2009 Mm -hmm. to get all the paperwork and everything done, Um, right when the economy sort of started drying up. Oh, sure. All these grants were were just this fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that was hard, but it also uh, taught us how to live within our means. Oh, Um, sure. We've never been dependent on on outside funding. We've always just been Mm self-sufficient, and I think that's probably a gift of having been a freelance musician for all those oh, years. Sure. Yeah. yeah, Talking about grants, um, well, actually, you said that you you don't really rely on outside funding. We get um, it right. sometimes, but we don't depend on it. Sure. So does that, um, does it come from tuition then? Most of our, yeah, tuition and, and give. Well, by outside funding, I mean um, grants and foundations. And we do have a members program that's sort of, 
modeled after the public radio supporter oh, sure. members. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you get a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, so that's a good way to do it. Yeah. And, and when we started, you know, I, I thought and said a number of times that, you know, I'd rather have, you know, 100 people give us 20 bucks mm-hmm. than, you know, have one big donor. And, sure. you know, and we have people who are generous as, as they're able to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have some $20 members, oh, sure. you know, and we have some $1,000 members. And, you know, it's they're all very appreciated. That reminds me a little bit of the Bernie Sanders campaign yeah. <laughs> this last year. There was $28, I think. Was, 27 was, Oh, $27, yeah. That's the amount I give a couple of times, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. I was reading uh, a little bit about your group, and um, you have, your mission is so concise. And I, I saw, I was reading about... Um, removing barriers that keep people away from the arts Mm -hmm. and I was I was wondering first of all what what exact barriers do you mean like that's a good question Um, I mean an obvious one is financial and Mm -hmm. as much as we're able to if somebody needs financial assistance we provide it Um, and our ability to do that is dependent on a lot of things but one of the you know one of the easiest ways for us to do it is if somebody wants to participate in one of our ensembles and we can't afford it as long as the ensemble is paying for itself anyway Mm -hmm. then we can help somebody do that way the other um what i think is a bigger obstacle um which i think is especially critical with the classical music world now um is just people not understanding the music Mm -hmm. or thinking that it's a certain way and part of that i think is the way it's presented to them sure um, part of it, you know, is just not knowing how to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And so part of our mission is educating people mm-hmm. and, and making it accessible. I, I spend so much time, I've visited the Cranert Center so many times mm-hmm. that I don't even think about it, but I know people who are kind of nervous about going in there. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, sure. Yeah. I know. And yeah. I know exactly what you mean because we've, uh, we've had discussions with our board, uh, with Urbana Pops about where, uh, where to perform in the earlier days, and about how there's uh, there's a bit of a stigma um, about like going to a legit concert hall. Yeah, because that, you don't know, you might not do it right. Right, or, right, or you yeah. might cough at the wrong time, or yeah, your phone yeah. might go off. And uh-huh. yeah, no, I, that's I, that's a, actually a really great point. I think it's one of the reasons that we've we've kind of stuck to where we are. And, and I mean, we have a really great relationship with this with the school district as well. And sure, they've yeah. got they've got a great space over there that we play in. Mm-hmm. Well, we've had um, we do our faculty concerts in public places, mm-hmm. and the last couple of years we we've done it at the Iron Post, and we fill that place with people who oh, come sure. to hear chamber music. Oh yeah, you know, and other things that we play. Mm-hmm. But you know, they like it. It's just it's not so formal, sure. and they're not so worried about if they're going to do it wrong. Right. Or, yeah. 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 That's that's a really great point. Um, you've you're also very um, culturally diverse and accepting as well um and i assume in your membership but also in the repertoire that you play mm-hmm. um what what would one expect to hear at one of our concerts sure well for example your your viola recital that we're going to talk oh, about maybe here in a recital. Yeah. okay um or and or just like mm-hmm. basically you know when 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 uh when one of your groups plays at it does a gig yeah uh we um but just in the, as an example your viola recital is actually very culturally diverse and uh-huh. I, I um I wouldn't I, I would assume that that's that your choice in music like that is probably very similar to how uh, your group or how uh, C4A as an organization picks um 
yeah uh, performing art like performing groups in, in the music that they play sort of I guess you could say there's an analogy there because we um, we do have on our faculty people who are just amazing classical players mm-hmm. and we also have people who specialize in jazz and people who specialize in folk music styles mm-hmm. and and uh, and more <laughs> you sure. know they, I could just keep rattling off mm-hmm. the different genres um, our most recent uh, hire is a guitarist who specializes in Congolese rumba. It's beautiful stuff. Bet, You're going to yeah. be hearing more from him, I think. Oh, nice. Um, but, you know, the viola recital, I thought, well, you know, Urbana Pops is hosting this. I think there's probably going to be some expectation that the principal violist might play something classically violist. Sure, you know? yeah. You know, and um, so I started there, and I thought, well, you know, what would be fun to play? Mm-hmm. And what would I enjoy playing? And what do I think people would like hearing? And um, I think you can't go wrong with Bach. Sure. Except that you can go wrong with Bach because when everybody knows it, and so, you know, whatever people do is like, somebody's going to be going, oh, that's not how I would do oh, it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. The, inter- yeah. the Bach interpretation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that later. Oh, sure. I'd, yeah. Yeah, I'm one of the things that I got from my primary teacher when I was an undergrad is um, he always wanted me to have a story mm-hmm. in my mind that would help me create the musical atmosphere that I sure. was looking for. And that I love that. Um, but the thing with whenever I play this this Bach prelude, um, the story shifts according to the day. Yeah, I don't, sure. When I first was. How many notes you miss, for example? Well, I don't do that. <laughs> oh, well, of course not. No. No, no. If I if I play a different note, I meant to because mm-hmm. it's improv. It was improvisation. Yeah, right, sure. right. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, the um, <laughs> and so there there's that, and I can sort of tell you a little bit about that. When I first was an undergrad playing this one, I just tried to have every note perfect, and I was really worried about what the Boeing's gonna be, and mm-hmm. and and I still really want it to sound good. I still want it to flow. You know, I'm. I'm really concerned that it be in tune Mm -hmm. and, you know, that kind of thing. But the story that I'm telling is a lot more spontaneous. There are many, many versions of it. And I don't actually know which one's going to come out until it does, Mm -hmm. Um, which is pretty fun because it keeps me entertained. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, I see in uh, fall 2015, you uh, added flow arts performance. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that, because I'm just genuinely curious. Yeah, I know. Nobody knows what that yeah. means. <laughs> um, and even if I um, if I describe it to you, it becomes it gets to be like, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the teachers we have they specialize in juggling and hooping, and one of them eats fire, and oh. um, and they. But what it is is like this kind of they say prop manipulation, which is such this dry sounding term, but they. Um, they combine all this stuff. Uh, it's a couple that teaches it, Michael and Satina Braswell. He has a martial arts background. She mm-hmm. has a dance background. And the flow arts is named after the the state of flow that was made popular by a book by Csikszentmihalyi, mm-hmm. um, which is um, where you just become so engrossed and absorbed in something that sort of time ceases and you're just totally... Like a hypnotic state, yeah. maybe, yeah. And, um, that is really analogous to the way you can get with your music oh sure too. oh and, i'm sure it's identical yeah and so i think that that's why they fit in our program because mm-hmm. it's not music performance but but it's, it's movement it it's sounds movement, like movement yeah. it's rhythmic it's visual it's artistic it's 
you know, it's stuff you practice and then combine to make a presentation. Sure, no, that's, it's and also it, absolutely relevant. Yeah. And it looks really cool yeah. <laughs> when you perform it. So. That sounds actually really, really neat. Yeah, it is. Now, we were talking a little bit about your uh, viola recital, which is, a, at least in some point, a solo recital for viola. Uh-huh. And um, people might be a little surprised to hear that viola can be a solo instrument. Um, so how many, uh, tell us a little bit about how, how a professional violist approaches the solo scene for viola. I mean, what, what repertoire is available? Is it extremely common that, that the solos are played? Well, um, more recently, I think 20th century composers discovered that the viola was kind of a cool voice that they could use. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of things written more recently. Um, and if you're looking back in classical period, it's kind of slim pickings. Sure. Um, the best thing that I know of is the Mozart Sinfonia Concertante, but you have to share it with the violin. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, the I think the a bulk of it is 19th century um, pieces. Uh, like, I'm playing this piece by Schumann. Mm-hmm. Um, the violists argue perennially with the clarinet players about whether Brahms wrote those sonatas for viola or clarinet, but he actually endorsed both of them being able also, to Also, clarinets it. have enough to play, I yeah. feel. So yeah. I think you deserve to say it's yours. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Carl Maria von Weber wrote some pieces. Um, but, you know, it's still not nearly as much repertoire as sure. violin stuff. So, And we steal the cello suites from the cellos. Everybody steals the cello suites, I think. Yeah, well, yeah. that's because they're such good pieces. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, yeah. and, you're, and you're, you're playing one. You're playing the, the first the uh, prelude first from. Uh-huh. cello suite. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, the prelude. Yeah. Um, which I, I've played on saxophone before. Yeah, everybody it's an plays F. that one. It's an F major because that's the highest note. Uh, no. Yeah. no, it's in G. Or for us, it's F. No. Are you, are you thinking, I'm just giving you oh, trouble. Oh, I got you. Okay. <laughs> I, you're, you're, I see what you're doing there. Um, it's, I'm it, conductor baiting. Yeah, oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to trademark that. Uh, it's, it is a really beautiful piece, though, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's very hard for a wind player to, to play because yeah. it's, I mean, because there's no place to breathe. Right. Bach wasn't thinking about breathing at all. Um, but it also kind of uh, translates directly to how, how you guys bow mm-hmm. as well, because that, that gives us information about, about how to breathe as well. Um, you're not just playing classical works, though. Uh, you've got uh, Roger Hammerstein, um, so, uh, some more ethnic, um, uh, culturally diverse things. Uh, and I see also on here that you, you've arranged a, even a pop tune. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're your like your your custom arrangements yeah. is, is that something you do often or um i wish i had time to do it more but uh-huh. I, I like doing it mm-hmm. um and i i usually do them for my students mm-hmm. um but that's a good reason to do them oh sure yeah. yeah yeah um and you've got actually speaking of students you've got several appearing with you mm-hmm. uh and i think this pairs beautifully with um the education mission, I think, of, of both of our organizations. Yeah. But tell us a little bit about um, some of the students that will be uh, with you and what they're playing. Yeah, well, the youngest is a violin student of mine who um, plays in the Bodacious String Band also. She's nine. Mm-hmm. Her name is Cecilia. And an intrepid fiddle player. She's an intrepid fiddle player. Yeah. yeah. I, you, wrote, you wrote that to me in an email. And I was, yeah. I kind of did laugh she's, at that. She's bold. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look at the band and say, who will take a solo, she always steps up. Wow. And um, she performed at the Old Time Fiddlers uh, Association competition in October, mm-hmm. twice, I think. And uh, she placed last time she was there. 
and um, she um, has written two compositions, and we'll be playing one of her compositions on mm-hmm. the recital too. Oh, no kidding! Yeah, and, and this one is uh, it's the PTA at her school has some kind of networking mm-hmm. where they get kids to do creative works, mm-hmm. and she decided that she was going to write these songs, and um, her song has passed into out of regional and state and into a national level of consideration oh, no which kidding. i think is just great that would be really neat it's an adorable song yeah and um she composed the words and the the music and um we kind of worked out uh harmony parts and yeah. stuff like that so. that's i'm i'm really excited mm-hmm. uh, you've, you've also got sam atkinson a mm-hmm. cello player um also with the bodacious string band um how long has he been with you guys have you, have you had him since he was a little kid, or how many? Ch- well, I guess how many? Ch- um, I, you have a lot of string players in the band, right? Yeah. Um, I, um, I don't remember how long Sam's been in there. At least several years. Mm-hmm. Um, he studies with Chris Peterson, who's one of our teachers, and our sound also engineer. play. Also, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and then we also we we at least uh, UPO and C4A shares at least one head on on the recital here, Elizabeth Atkinson. Mm-hmm. Who is a violin and viola uh, player? Mm-hmm. Also, the bodacious, uh, well, bodacious alum. Yeah, she's an alum. She she uh, gained entrance into the youth orchestra, and for a while she did both. But it made for a very very long Sunday. Oh sure, and, I bet. Um, because both of them practice then. Mm-hmm. So, but she's still on call. Oh great. Um, all right, so we've got uh, some works here, and you mentioned before, um, kind of how you. You tell a story with mm-hmm. with the music that you play and how uh, it, could, it could differ from day to day. And I was wondering, perhaps, if we if you could walk me through that a little bit on one of your pieces. Yeah, I'd love to. Great. Okay, so we were talking earlier about um, the infinite, uh, seemingly infinite ways you could interpret Johann Sebastian Bach and his music. And I was really excited to see also that on your program you have uh, the prelude from his first cello suite, which is probably easily uh, the fa- the most famous out of uh, all of all yeah. the music from from his, his cello suites um, and you were also talking about how telling a story guides the decisions that you make uh, in the playing so I was hoping we could uh, we could play through this and you could kind of talk me through it a little bit and kind of okay. tell me what you're thinking okay so um, what I think is fun about this piece is that it almost the whole thing has the same rhythm mm-hmm. it's just and you have to take this long string of notes and turn it into something interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I could play the very famous opening, okay. um, just trying to make everything sound perfect. That sounds like that's the etude approach. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, um, and you know you can do it perfectly with a metronome, but the thing is that. Um, Bach was thinking about the key of G when he wrote this. Mm-hmm. And um, I know some people in our recording engineer department might think it's better on the cello, but it's still good on the viola. <laughs> and what I like to do, um, what I like for people to know is that Bach was really, these guys were super aware of the instruments that they were mm-hmm. writing for. And so um, he's got this G ground bass over his opening standard 145 um, in, in non-musician terms, it's a chord progression where you start 
in one place and you go away from that place and then you come mm -hmm. back and it feels really good when right. you get there. Sure. Okay. So that's the best explanation I think of a chord progression I've ever heard. <laughs> I got it from a friend. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, but so here is um, you can he uses the open G string, which um, if you're not familiar with the instrument, the open string will ring for a long time. It'll mm -hmm. just keep ringing. If I if I finger a note, it's still resonant, but it doesn't ring as sure. long. And so if I hit that string just right with my bow, it'll keep ringing the whole time I'm playing the other notes. Mm -hmm. And I like to take advantage of that. So. Didn't that sound yeah. right? Well, and it, 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 it sits underneath the whole thing the entire yeah, time, Yeah, and so the too. G, is, it's sort of like if I were playing a duet with... Maybe we can do this when you have your lesson. Yeah. Maybe you can just play the G the whole time. I could probably handle that. Yeah, yeah. it would be fun. Let's do that. Okay. Um, okay, but uh, so that's the theoretical thing where, well, this G is important. Um, and there's this chord progression that... It's, it encapsulates what happens during the whole piece. Mm -hmm. And then he goes back and says, okay, well, all right, I could stop here, or I could go back and elaborate or I could on not. this a yeah. little bit. Sure. Yeah. And the thing I like about this prelude is realizing that Bach was a champion improviser, mm -hmm. and he would improvise things like this. And this prelude is supposed to sound sort of like somebody's improvising. Mm -hmm. And um, that's one of the reasons that I think I have license to not play it absolutely metronomically. Sure. And there are places along here where I think, well, um, let me see if I can sound like this just occurred to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so here's one of those places. Mm -hmm. Chocolate viola tone. just so you can hear how good that note is. Mm -hmm.
you have to recover. Mm-hmm. You've just totally spent. You've taken on, in a lot of information. Yeah, and now you have to kind of ponder it over and build back up that head of steam. to pull out the bass line. In his music, you can have this long string of notes, but he has different voicings going on at the same time. So I'll try to make it really obvious here. Okay, and here's the home stretch. And um, it's actually, there's this A drone, the open A string goes back and forth, but there's still like a moving line that's Mm -hmm. the most important part. So it was a, it was also approached from a, a moment of anxiety that that you know must lead somewhere good. Yeah. Or you'll never have satisfaction from it. Exactly. Yeah, um, and it's a really gorgeous gorgeous work in itself. And I, and I also can help notice that even even though you're you're playing sixteenth notes the entire time, mm-hmm. that you still choose the special ones. Yeah. And they get vibrato, uh-huh. which it, which is easy to see. When you watch a string player play, it's always very easy to see, um, and that you you still pick these special notes to color just a little bit with with a different technique. It's really really great. Yeah, one of the best explanations of that idea that I've ever heard came from the jazz violinist from Chicago named Johnny Frigo. Mm-hmm. Um, I went and interviewed him, and he talked about um, improvising a lot because I was really into it at that point, and he called them the juicy notes. Oh sure. I love that expression. Yeah. All right, so you've also got, uh, you're going to be appearing with a bunch of different students, and we were talking a little bit about um, kind of the, the ethnic diversity of your program as well, mm-hmm. uh, some uh, South American tunes here, and there's something from there you could play for me? Sure. For that one, I think I'm going to get the little brother out. Okay. You were telling us a little bit during the break that um, the same guy built both of these instruments. Oh yeah, and we'll have we'll have a picture of them too. Okay, up great. On, well, yeah, when we uh, when we release the podcast. Yeah, his name is Paul Schubach. He's uh-huh. in Portland, Oregon, and he's still he's actually primarily a ch- primarily a cello builder. Mm-hmm. Um, but he made both of my instruments. Oh, I gotcha. Um, so 
We'll see. Um, I could give you just like a little sample of sure. some of them. Yeah. Um, my favorite tune right this minute okay. is called Palomita. Okay. And um, it's, uh, it's the little dove. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. um, so the main part goes... Um, Lots of syncopation. Yeah. yeah. And um, the reason I had to switch to this one on the violin instead of the viola um, is because um, if I wanted to play it on the viola, I would have to kind of reinterpret it. But that's a close interpretation mm -hmm. to the way it was conceived. And that Andean, um, it's strongly, strongly influenced by Andean folk music. But what I thought it would fit on this concert nicely is because it's... Um, it's not exactly folk music. It's just really deeply rooted in that tradition, mm -hmm. but it's composed. And um, but the Andean folk music, they really like they like the really high up flutes, mm -hmm. and even their guitars are really little and high pitched. Mm -hmm. And so it just it wouldn't have the right sound on the viola. I so, got you. Yeah, no, that that makes yeah. a whole bunch of sense. Um, yeah. Speaking of viola, I really really would like to learn how to play a little bit of it. You would. Yeah, if you wouldn't I mind. I, I can't, I mean, I, I'm not a string player. I'm, I'm awful at pretty much every string instrument. But oh, I no, think, no, no, no. You just you just haven't had the proper experience All right. well, offered I, to you. I, uh, I count on you to guide me through that then. Okay. You're about to have one of life's greatest pleasures. Okay, I'm okay. very much looking forward to it. Yeah, so the thing to realize about the viola, as we talked about earlier, the tone is everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're gonna start with your bow. Okay. All right, and here's how I show people how to hold a bow. First of all, can you just make your hand be like a dog paw? Yeah, perfect, okay? And then when I'm gonna hold you here, and you just let your hand drop like that, and I'm gonna bend your thumb and stick it right there like that. and. Um, that looks really great. The more relaxed you can have, the deeper the chocolate of your tone will be. Okay. Okay. And what he has here that you guys can't see on the podcast is that uh, he has his middle two fingers wrapped around the side of the bow to the little black part that we call the frog. And he has his thumb on the underside of the bow and it's bent so that he can get a lot of action out of that big muscle in his thumb. Okay. okay, and we're gonna just slide the viola up here. You don't even need your hand, your fingers yet. Okay, so there's only three things you can do to change the tone on your viola, okay? okay? So we'll put the bow right here on the string. One of the things you can change is where you touch the string with your bow, okay? okay. So if we touch it over here, over the black part, that's the fingerboard, it'll sound fluffy like this. If we put it too close to the bridge, it'll sound kind of grind, grindy. Okay, I like to put it right in the middle. Okay, so where you put the bow is one of the things. Um, the other thing is uh, how fast you mo move the bow. Okay. Not how fast the notes go, but how fast the bow goes. From start so, to finish. Yeah, so if you're moving it quickly, it'll sound like this. Okay, if you move it slowly, it sounds like that. Okay, so you have to strike the balance. That sounds awful. Yeah, I know, but don't don't worry because the third variable okay. is what I like to call traction or friction. Okay. Okay, and that's why it's important the way you hold your bow because when you've that thumb 
that you have where you can use that big thumb muscle, mm -hmm. um, you can flex your thumb and it's hard to see this when you're just listening, but you'll hear it. If you flex your thumb, it makes more, tra more traction. And if you have too much traction for the amount of bow speed, you get that cockroach noise. It's good at Halloween, okay? Uh, yeah. But if I have that same amount of friction and I move the bow a little bit faster, you get a nice tone. Mm -hmm. And did you hear the kind of crunch at the end? Oh, sure. That's because our speed slowed down. And so you didn't have enough speed for the amount of for the end of the, end for the, of the yeah the end okay. of traction okay yeah so just kind of get what I call like I, I uh, have my students do bow push-ups where they flex the thumb and they can see the stick going up and down oh, like that that's really cute bow, yeah bow push-ups bow push-ups right and so get about like kind of half mast there and just pull a bow see that wasn't bad that was all the way up to Hershey bar that wasn't even Nestle's crunch all right. Yeah, so let's see if you can go Hershey's Special Dark. Okay, well, so for Special Dark, what you need weight. to do, a little bit more weight, and here's the secret recipe. That knuckle right there, uh -huh. if you feel that while you're pulling the bow, it's gonna sound better. I don't know why that works, but it does. That's weird. <laughs> so here's the thing, um, if you've never put a bow on the string before, if you have ever ridden a bicycle, or driven a car and you can be aware that your tires are on the road, that's what it's like when you're bowing. Mm -hmm. You can feel the string through your fingers on the stick. Okay. Okay. And that's what you always want to be monitoring to get, you know, and like so, a feedback kind of a, like a, yeah. Okay. So when you don't feel it, you're going to be getting Nestle's crunch sound. Okay. Which is bad. <laughs> well, unless that's what you happen to want. Right. But usually we don't want it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Brahms would hate Nestle's crunch sound. Yeah. Let's see if you can. Okay, so now, right now, you're doing this eagle claw thing. Okay. Yeah, that's not that's not good. Eagles are bad. Eagles are good, but not they don't hold the bow very well. Okay. Okay. So there. So because it keeps you from being able to feel the string, mm -hmm. you have to use the force. Any kind of tension like gets between you and the string. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now when you're on the. The G string there is the one you're playing. Now we're gonna just make your whole arm level drop to the D string. And here's the thing about violas, uh, I think cellos also suffer from this. It's like there's a uh, relationship between um, friction and bow speed mm -hmm. where on the lowest string you can use lots of friction but not very much bow speed to get the best sound. Okay. And on the highest string you use less friction Light. and more speed okay. to get the best sound. In the middle strings, it's kind of like you have to figure out what to mm -hmm. do in there. Okay. Um, so That has I, to do with mass, I bet, or something. Uh, the yeah, the, the string mass. Yeah. And, it, and it's different on every instrument, and it's different with different kinds of strings. And mm -hmm. yeah. So I want to see, um, I know you're a trained musician, so mm -hmm. I'm betting you're going to catch this rhythm right away. Okay. Jingle bells, in case you were okay. wondering. Try not to let your bow come off the string. Try to keep your... Okay, good. Okay. And can you do that on the D string? Does it matter which way my bow is going? Mm, not for now. Okay. okay, so right now you had too much speed for the friction. Okay. Okay, so... Oh, also, it's easier if you okay. do it right there. Okay, so here's your job. 
okay? I saw your foot go up and yeah. I, I, I Oh yeah, that was the that was the fiddler's thing. Okay. The foot going up means okay, we're gonna stop. Yeah, because I definitely was not looking at you. I was so freaked out about this. Yeah, business but going didn't, over wasn't that pretty? Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. We should we could take this on tour. Yeah. That's what I do with um I've learned my two adult, notes. adult violin class in their first lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, they learn how to play that. And it's fun because you can start making music right yeah. away. <laughs> that was called the Carrie Polka. Alright. Yeah. Teach me a song. Okay. Um, like I did. We did Ode to Joy with my bassoon lesson. Do you want to do Ode to Joy? Sure. Or you want to do? Okay. Because I know it. Yeah. It's in the key of D. Okay. So and it's the string. St- yeah. And so we're going to start with that second Me, finger. Do you, can you just count up the... Not bad. Let's do it again. Oh, shoot. Do I use, yeah. do I use two... I'm gonna just help your thumb a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah. This um, this between your index finger and your thumb um, makes it's sort of like a caliper, mm-hmm. and you want it to just gently grip the side of the fingerboard, and that will inform you. That probably sounds like an F sharp. Let's hear it. A little bit flat. Go again. Okay. And then um, try this. Um, can you play the A? I know a different song I want to teach you. Okay. Okay. Is it easier? Yeah. Okay. Well, no. <laughs> I need I need easier music. Huh? Yeah, but check this out. It's just transposed massively. Okay. Okay, but it's Bach. Okay. And um, I call it Mr. Bach's tunnel song because a tunnel in violin language is when I have fingers on one string that's a lower string, but underneath my fingers... You can play the open string. So I'm playing my A string, but I have fingers on the second string. Okay. And the reason that you care about that is because you can play this from the E major prelude um, for violin. Okay. Okay. I'll never be able to play that. I'm telling you, think you right it's now. Is it too hard? I- Maybe. You have to do this with your fingers. Okay, let me... Okay. Yeah, and now okay. you have to go like up and down. Good. Okay, well, that's not so bad. No, and now do this. cello in a former life. They always go close to the frog, but for us, it's easier in the middle. Oh, okay. Yeah. Here, let me guide you. And here's the secret with this. You have to make, your hand is going to make horizontal, um, no, clockwise circles. Oh, okay. That takes all the guesswork out for you. We can go this fast, okay? Okay. Can you do that? Yeah. Now, while your bow's on the A string, you change fingers, so it goes like this. Okay, okay, so let me make sure I get these notes right. 
try it again. <laughs> okay. Too bad they don't have a visual on this. Yeah. Well, we're we're taking some video. They're gonna okay. laugh. They're gonna laugh. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned also doing um, Bach holding a G, uh-huh. right? Can we do that real quick? Oh, because that's oh, super oh, easy. Oh, oh, right, right. I only do one note. That's how you do that. I'm glad you remembered that. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to do this. You can just hold a pedal point because you know he was an organ player, so he'd like that. Okay. Okay. You just go ahead and get started. Wait, which one am I doing? That one. The third one. Okay. Go. Now you need a new note. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was getting into it, too. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, so that that's it. Now that in, that instrument that you're holding right there was given to C4A by a woman uh, in, named Elaine Gleason, and she was uh, sort of a mentor through me mm-hmm. for me. In fact, she was in the string quartet that played in the schools that made me want to play the violin. Oh, okay. And she was instrumental, so to speak, of getting the string program started in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And once it was up and running. They had this problem where nobody knew how to work on the instruments, mm-hmm. and so she went and took classes and learned how to become Re- a luthier. Like sure. And okay. she opened her violin shop, and a couple of years ago she closed it, um, and you know she was ready to be done with that. Sure. And she donated this viola that you're playing and a number of really it great looks really instruments nice. and stuff. It's a decent viola. Yeah. And um, so she gave all of her shop stuff to C4A. So oh. I just think that's a really cool oh, yeah. story. That's really neat. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. I think I've learned more than I've ever known about viola. <sighs> I think we we'll we'll be coming out with a CD soon. I think. <laughs> all right, that's all we have for today. Thank you so much, Robin, for being here with us today. It was absolutely my pleasure, Daniel. Yeah, Thanks that was for a lot having of fun. me. Yeah. Uh, make sure you check out her recital April 9th, 2 p.m. at the Urbana Free Library. Check out our website, urbanapops.org, where you can find the most recent episode of the UPO Popscast, as well as information about the orchestra and upcoming performances and events. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash urbanapops, where there are pictures and behind-the-scenes footage of this episode. We'd like to give our special thanks to the Community Center for the Arts for providing a studio space. You can read more about C4A at c-4a.org. The UPO Popscast is produced and engineered by Chris Peterson, and I am Daniel Sutherland. From all of us here at Urbana Pops Orchestra, thank you for listening. Be sure to leave us a like, comment, and tell us your favorite part of today's episode. Hit that subscribe button, and we will see you next time.